Thank you, brother, for reading that. Good morning, everyone, and welcome. Uh, I guess kind of to start out before we kind of get into our sermon this morning, know that I love you all. I don't say this from any special position, but I say this as a fellow servant of yours. It's a great honor to be here this morning. Sean asked me a couple months ago if I would be able and willing, and uh, at first I said yes, but then I said no, and he talked to me, and we kind of went back and forth, and I said yes again. And so this morning I have kind of a look together as to why Christianity is the singing religion. And when we think of what we read this morning together, there's this sense of thanksgiving. Thanksgiving to God, appreciative for what he's done for us, for the very rescue of our souls that we call salvation. But more importantly, and we will find as we go through the lesson this morning, if you look in verse 6, there's a very special reason why we sing. And it's because when it's done properly, we will understand that God is literally in our midst. See if I can do this correctly. If I make any mistakes, it's Sean's fault. No, he's easy to blame. He's not here. But um, no, if I make mistakes, feel free to come up to me. Uh, if there's a point of contention, we can talk about it. But uh, I shall stand before you all, and I shall stand before God. And so let us begin. So let's ask ourselves this key question in life. Have you ever wondered what the true purpose is of singing? Or is there a meaning behind singing itself? What about the history behind song itself? What we're going to look at today together is we're going to look at the history of why song is even more powerful than the written word. And so when you think of religion itself, you can think of the following questions we're all familiar with in life. Who do we sing to? Why? How? When? Where? And so forth. And when you look at Christianity as a whole, when you think of comparing it to other major monotheistic religions, such as Judaism or Islam, you'll find that we're unique. You'll find that the faith in Christ is very unique. Now, they all have singing, don't get me wrong. But the Jews, they have instruments. One of them is called the kapuz, right? What is that? It's a stringed instrument. It sounds lovely if you ever get a chance to hear it. But what about the Muslims in Islam? Well, they have the daf or the drum. But in Christianity, we have our vocal cords, we have our voice. Now, before we kind of carry on, you may be wondering, well, Sean gave us a lesson on singing a few months ago, did he not? And that answer is yes, you're absolutely correct. But we're going to look more behind the history and the purpose itself, rather than the doctrinal impact of it. As we carry on, we'll find that the answer itself is more than just a com commandment. So if you wonder what the purpose and the meaning is behind singing and why we do it, today I hope to share that reason with you, as it is very evident in our scripture. So singing itself is educational. It has an educational component. It's very therapeutic in a way when you think of it. It can be calming. Singing is very important because in the terms of the very benefit for the singer itself, there's also a benefit for those who hear it, those who are familiar with the tune, those who are familiar with even the words of the song. But the same benefit may be extended to those who do not know the song, those who do not know the moral lesson even. There is a, a benefit even within itself. And so when we think of the importance of singing, we can reflect that behind the history of it and behind the benefit of it, we will find that not only has it a defined purpose in our word, but it has a defined purpose for ourselves and within our culture. 
Sorry, I'm going a little bit too fast here. So the history of it. So when we consider history and we consider song itself, song is a crucial aspect of any culture. Doesn't matter what culture you go to. Uh, for example, those who like soccer, we just had the World Cup not too long ago. Uh, and if you listen to the fans, they will cheer local songs or national songs for their team. In fact, before every match at the World Cup, the national anthem of each playing country is played. Song has a very crucial impact on culture. And it is the same when we sing to, to the Lord. And when you compare song itself, the idea of singing, and you compare it to written history, you'll find a notable, uh, notable difference. Written history itself covers everything. In fact, most of what we know is actually written in history. But when you consider written history itself, it's only very recent. What about song? Song has been around much longer than writing, at least as we know it. You think of when Moses got the tablets on Mount Sinai, and a very primitive form of etching it into the tablets, right? Stone with chisel and hammer, if you will. But song, singing existed before then, and we'll take a look at that this morning. And so you might as well say this. The impact of singing in our history and in our day-to-day -day lives is far more paramount or of far more critical importance than even written history itself or recorded history. And so when you think of the components of a song, you think of the following. A tune and a story together will carry a lesson. And what is meant by that? Well, we remember the words to a song because we can sing it with a tune. But can a song exist without a tune? That answer is also yes. You see, you can sing the same song to a different tune, if you will, and the lesson will still be present. But the idea of a repeated tune is to carry the story as uniquely consistent forward. And that's important, because when you think of the history of singing, you think of how rich it is among Christians. Because when we share faith to faith with each other, when we sang the songs today, when, bro uh, <coughs> when Brother Kyle had led us in singing, there's a lesson in each, each aspect, in each verse. We are understanding some aspect of our Lord or our common faith or why we do it. And when we look at the history of singing itself, we will understand that among Christians, our very faith is deeply rooted in song. And it is the very characteristic of our faith, if you will. And so we shall begin kind of with the following. Why does singing exist? Is it something that God said go forth? Is it something that benefits us in a, in a way that maybe might not be as evident? Or is there something else behind it? If you would like, in, in your Bibles, please turn over to Colossians chapter 3. And we'll take a look kind of uh, why this morning. I'm just going to set my Bible down because I notice there's a screen here. <clears throat> Sorry about that. And of course the screen goes out now. So turn over to Colossians chapter 3. And when we look at the work that Apostle Paul is doing, he's describing to the people of Colossae what this new self is. When he declares to put on the new self, he's talking about the importance of why we do certain things. Look here beginning in verse 14, and we're going to pay attention in verse 16 in particular. But Paul declares, he says, beyond these things put on love, 
which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule within your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and of course be thankful. And then he says, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching, admonishing one another in spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord. Sorry, the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Now, why did I highlight verse 16 for us? Look at the beginning of the point he's making. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. That's what song represents to us. For if we sing with a pure heart and we sing with joy to the Lord, Christ is richly present. And we'll take a look more at that as we kind of continue on together this morning. And so Paul is really teaching the Colossians something we are all familiar with in the end. But notice also in verse 14, the apostle declares that love is the perfect bond of unity. And if you think is Jesus being love as representative fully of love, then we must note together that in order to be united in, in Christ, in order to share and exemplify his love, it's done through song. Now you might say, well, Nicholas, when we talk about the Lord, we just talk as we, we, we speak regularly. What about singing? Well, when we come to church, we sing um, not only as an act of worship, but we sing to edify each other. We sing because we enjoy singing. Uh, what's special about Westside, as I've, you know, for the past 10 years I've been a Christian, is the passion behind singing. Everybody loves it. And that's very unique. And it must be commendable because it's wonderful. And when it's done correctly, we can see the lesson that Paul has delivered us in, Colos- in the lesson to the Colossians, that it is every bit is valid. And let's notice something important also here now in verse 15. If we sing to the Lord and we do it joyously, then the very peace of Christ must be present. Let's ask ourselves a different question to kind of realize what I mean by that. If you're joyful to God, are you at peace? Or are you at war with yourself? Or are you frustrated or angry? I don't think it's possible to sing and be angry. You can sing a song of anger, but you don't convey the same as being angry itself. And so when we look at what Paul is saying here, not only do we have the love and the unity of Christ, but we have his very tranquil peace, which is important. But let's build on this a little bit together, a little bit more on Paul's instruction here. And when we compare it to something like written history, remember earlier I said song has a greater outreach than written history itself, and it's true. You can go to very primitive cultures around the world where they don't have exposure to written history, but you will find they have song. You will find even in the remotest parts of Africa, even in their tribal nature, they will have song. They won't have written history. You can go to the same places in the Amazon in the Brazilian rainforest, right? And you will see the same thing. Song is present. And so when we compare written history to song itself, written history is fairly primitive in its approach, but song, while relatively unchanged, has a far greater impact and outreach. Think of it this way. When you get your news of a story on the radio, you're listening to it audibly. When you read it online, does it have the same impact, or do you have to go back and reread it maybe once or twice? And there's a reason for that. Now, when you think of song, 
Are you far more likely to remember the sermon I preached today? Or a song that we sang, for example, Worship the King? The answer is you will remember the song. The tune sticks with you. The lessons within the song sticks with you. You might remember key points within the lesson, but the song itself will stick with you, and it will stick with you for years and years. And God designed it that way. Because when you think of singing, and as we'll look a little bit later today in Scripture, song itself has a distinct ability to stick with the audience. Sorry, I went backwards. So when we think of singing itself, it's the very characterization of faith. And Paul has a very fine lesson here, and this is a word that is not common to us. This isn't even a Hebrew word. I want us to kind of take a look at this word together. The word is Shekinah. And what does it mean? Well, it's a Chaldean word, which means it's a word of the Canaanites. And it means resting place or dwelling. And you think of the songs we sang this morning. One of them said, praise the Lord, for he is within our midst. And that is important because what Paul is ultimately trying to say is when you sing and you do it in a correct manner, it means that God has the fullest presence the fullest opportunity to dwell and to be appreciative. Think of it this way. Is there a barrier in song itself? I think technically if you were to say, well, Nicholas, what if the person is deaf? They cannot hear. But let me ask you this. For those who know deaf people, have you actually heard them try to sing? They can sing the same way. They can sing with similar tones. And that is impressive because that has a far more lasting impact itself than written word. So more on this kind of unique word. The Jews are very familiar with Shekinah. And why are they familiar with it? Because throughout their history, this word was used to describe the very dwelling of God. When we think of the Old Testament, we can think of the very symbol of God's presence. And we can think of it in places like the tabernacle. Or we can also think of it in the first temple. But not the second temple. There's a reason for that. And when we think of this word, this word means to sort of rest or dwelling place. And we think of the Lord, we can begin to understand how it relates to not only the written word, but singing itself. And we understand this in Scripture when you think of even God leading the children out of Israel. How did he lead them by day versus by night? Sorry, I, I mentioned Israel. God led the children of Israel out of Egypt. That's what I should have said. Apologies. So when he's leading them into the wilderness, he's leading them by a pillar of cloud. Well, who is the pillar of cloud? We know in the New Testament it is also explained for us, but it is always God. It's always Jesus. And so we think of this unique word, and we tie it together with what Paul's saying in Colossians 3, and he does say it elsewhere, we begin to understand that through song is a reference to our Lord in our midst. And so let's consider an example in Scripture itself. If you consider the book of Exodus, for example, in chapters 14 and 40, we can find some references. For example, in chapter 14, verse 20, we think of their journey, and we think of Moses sort of living this camp life, and you have to think what is present. You have the people of Israel not knowing where they are. 
You have God leading them by a pillar of cloud by day and, of course, by fire at night. But what is sustaining them apart from God themselves? They have food. They have water. And do they have advanced history like we do? No, they do not. Do they have written history like we do? No, they do not. But they do have singing. And that is how they teach each other. But let's look here as we read in Scripture for a reference to kind of what I'm talking about. In verse 20 we read, So it came between the camp of Egypt and the camp of Israel that there was a cloud along with the darkness, yet it gave light at night. Thus one did not come near the other all night. And you think of what this cloud is and what we know it represents. It's God. And God is leading the people, of course, just like he leads ourselves today. But now let's turn over, if you are following along, to Exodus chapter 40. And we'll begin in the 34th verse. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses was not able to enter the tent of the meeting because the cloud had settled upon it, and the glory of of the Lord filled the entire tabernacle. Throughout all their journey, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the sons of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out until the day when it was taken up. For throughout all of their journeys, the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and there was a fire by night in the sight of all the house of Israel. And so we get this understanding of God's dwelling. But we have references to this concept, although this word, again, does not appear in Scripture, but we do have references to this concept in the New Testament. Turn over to Luke chapter 2, if you will. The very concept of God within our midst. And you think over the announcement of the birth of our Lord, you think that an angel announcing such means God has to be really close. Look together with me in verse 9. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stands before them, and the glory of, of the Lord shone upon them, and they were terribly frightened. And then, of course, let's turn over to John chapter 1 and verse 14, and we understand something remarkable here. John records for us, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And when we saw his glory, glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So we see this concept that existed in the Old Testament times, is present in the New Testament writings about our Lord, and we begin to appreciate that God's dwelling not only has a purpose, but it can be picked up upon or understood through various means. In the Old Testament, we understand the tabernacle and we understand the temple. But what about in the New Testament? And what I'm trying to share with us today, that is done largely through song. I have one more example for us this morning. Turn over to Romans chapter 9, if you will. And in the fourth verse, Paul records for us, he says, Who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption as sons, and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises? Now you might say, okay, you've given me all of these scriptures. How do I really know that this is what you're saying? We can do it as follows. If you go back to Colossians chapter 3, when Paul is talking about all of those aspects of why we sing, how we do it, 
who we sing to, when and where, this idea is present. Because when it's all done correctly, when you think of all of our worship, as long as it's done correctly according to how the Lord has given it to us in, in word and in deed, then we realize that the dwelling of God has to be present. For why else would we worship if it wasn't the case? Now you might say, well, you gave me an Old Testament reference where not even the great Moses could go so close to it. But remember, what is our body for God? Is it not the temple? We'll take a look at that in a little bit here. And so when we consider in the Old Testament itself, we understand that the references to the cloud, the tabernacle, and so on and so forth, even when Moses gave the law on Mount Sinai, we see this concept of God's dwelling. In fact, it's always there, whether directly or indirectly, whether explicitly or implicitly. For example, when Moses goes up and gets the law for man, who is present? Is it just not Moses and God himself? What about the people down below? Sure, they stood up to play, and they were, some of them were destroyed for it later, but when they look up on the mountain, the glory of the Lord is there, and they were terrified. But when you think of what Jesus has done for us now, and you think of what was read for us this morning in our scripture reading, what do we have to fear? Doesn't Jesus make it approachable? When we sing to the Lord, doesn't it make Jesus approachable? And to kind of recap what I'm saying here, whenever we establish a purpose or a unique approach to God, then it has to mean God's dwelling is present. And that's what this word means. This means that the very divine presence of Christ has to be near. It's the very purpose of why we gather. But more accurately, whenever the truth of God's word is proclaimed, is not the same thing present? For example, we, we had a lesson this morning, and there was a question over the difference between proselytizing and evangelizing. And when you think of those differences, and when you think of taking the gospel forth to all creation, to man, woman, and child, and you think of the word of God being preached, isn't Christ there? Do you not have the echo of eternity behind that message? When you say be saved from this perverse generation as we read in Acts in several places, for example, Acts chapter 2, isn't that the same lesson? Isn't that the same lesson where we represent Christ as being present? Do we not honor Christ through his sacrifice in much the same way? We're not so remote from God, are we? And these are important things to consider as to why it matters for something like singing. And so when Paul is talking about something like letting the doctrine of Christ richly dwell within you, remember in Colossians chapter 3, this is precisely what he's talking about. And it is here that it really should hit home for all of us. The very importance of singing itself. Because again, as I have mentioned earlier, singing is not just a collection of meaningless do's and don'ts. It's not even a collection of mechanical sounds when you think of it. We have very beautiful singing in this room. Like, let's never take that for granted. It's very special. And so when we approach God in this manner, and when we appreciate his son and what God has done for us in this manner, then the closeness of God is there. And it is all done through singing. Because if you look in verse 16, 
singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Where's the only place God can dwell within us? Can he dwell within our hands? It doesn't make sense. Can he dwell within our mind? We would deceive ourselves. But what about our heart? If Christ truly dwells within our heart, so too does the Father and the Holy Spirit. And if they are present, then our faith is real. If they are not present, however, trouble abounds. And so more on point here. This is a purpose that excels the most, uh, how do you say it, the most stringent of thought. You see, I mentioned earlier that singing is very accessible. Think of even your favorite song on the radio. You will remember it for years and decades. In fact, even if you forget it for a short time, the moment it comes back on the radio, or maybe your computer or your MP3 player, you will instantly recognize it. And God has designed song for that very purpose. It's because regardless of how language changes, and language has changed a lot, in fact, language has changed a lot in the last 20 years, if we realize it or not. Song itself, the ability to convey a message through the ages, is unchanged. And I don't think it ever will change. And so, what is singing? Is singing a melody, or is singing something like a harmony? Both are present in song. But I wanted to kind of take a look at the difference between what is singing in the sense that God has delivered it to us and God expects of us versus what we treat as singing today. And for that, and I know there are some musical geniuses here, they know music very well, feel free to kind of correct me or kind of sharpen the edge a bit, I don't mind. But I want to kind of compare the difference between a melody and harmony to kind of further illustrate this point. You see, a melody is required for the most proper of devotional music. Without a melody, there is no singing. But singing can exist without harmony. And so when we think of music theory itself, we have three components. Actually, there's a fourth. There is melody, there is harmony, there is a rhythm, and then there are lyrics. Now, of course, lyrics can be absent and you can still have a song. For example, a chant uh, in, in the strictest sense. Or perhaps a, a tune you hear on the piano, but there are no lyrics. Melody and harmony themselves are based on the arrangement of pitches, and while they work together, they cannot be confused for being the same thing. But society often will do that. So what am I saying? Melody and harmony is different. And that's why when you look at verse 16, he talks about making melodies within your heart, not harmony. And there is a reason for that. A melody, what is a melody, you might wonder? A melody is a collection of musical tones that are grouped together to form a single entity or a unified entity. Why is that important when we talk about what Paul is saying? Well, if we sing correctly and we sing in unison, we are producing the same melody. We might sound a little bit different, we might sound a little bit lower, a little bit higher, even off-key, but the intended purpose and the specified purpose remains the same. And so when you think of melody, the only really distinguishing factor is the duration behind it, whether it's long or short. But what about harmony? Well, harmony is a composite approach. And so when you think of doctrinally why in the churches of Christ we will preach on why we do singing versus instrumental music, 
Harmony exists because of instrumental music. A harmony, as I mentioned earlier, is a composite sound. It's the combined product of individual musical sounds to form a cohesive whole. Now you might say, well, that's written for somebody in university. Break it down to layman's terms. We may think of something like an orchestra. And if you think of when the flutes play their part, we think of the violin or the cellos playing their part, and even the French horns. They have loud, distinct, and unique sounds. But they are all playing different notes. And in their different notes, they have not only their individual parts, but when they are heard together, a harmony is created. Notice the difference. Harmony requires mechanical aid, melody does not. And so let's look more at the orchestral example, for example. Take a look at the flutes. They might be playing their song in G. And this is maybe where I'll get in trouble, because I don't know if these notes match. <laughs> but think of the flutes. They'll play in G. The violins will play or bow their string in B. The cellos might have a G sound, and the French horns might resound in an F sound. But even though they individually play a single note together, they will play a harmonic chord. Now, if the chord is accurate or not, please let me know. But if this is tonally broken, for any of our musical experts out there, consider the following. The song still occurs. But what about with singing and melody? If somebody doesn't know how to sing, can they still convey the same message? The answer is yes. If somebody is off tone in singing, can they still convey the same message? Yes. But imagine an orchestra for a moment. Imagine the, the cellos getting it, the note wrong. Is the harmony unified? The answer is no. In fact, you can pick up on it. You don't even have to have a trained ear. You can pick up on it in the audience, and you'll know it is very far off. And there's a reason for that. And that's because with mechanical sound, something from an instrument, it dominates the sound. In fact, it will drown out the melody if you're not careful. And so you may ask, OK, that's great, Nick. You've taught us on musical theory and singing. What is this purpose? What is even the great difference between this? Well, if you compare a melody in a particular key, and you compare a harmony in a particular key, harmony cannot exist unless all of the chords are unified. Melody can exist even if there is no unison. It might sound a little bit off, but the melody is still present. And even in simpler terms, when you think of you being joyous or happy in life, and you sing a tone of joy, which is melody, it's really easily distinguishable than if you're angry or sort of mailing it in or kind of half-witting it along the way. It's not so with a harmony. And so back to my earlier statement. If you consider singing and its purpose before God, and you consider what Paul's saying to the Colossians, and we'll look later, he says also the same to the Ephesians, then you note that singing itself, which is melody, can exist regardless of what else occurs, and that's important. Because when we think of serving God, we serve God with all of our heart. If we only use half our heart, we're in trouble. In fact, recall the kings in the, the chronicles of the kings as well as the records of the kings, and you will see that God actually tells us which king uses his whole heart 
or half of his heart. And you think of singing itself, while we may be able to kind of mask each other, you know, maybe someone's hurting but they can still sing, God can easily tell the difference. But let me ask you this. If you remember your favorite song and musical instruments are present, if somebody tells you the lyrics, are you going to remember it? Chances are no, unless it's a very unique song. But you will remember the first few chords of that song. Have you ever listened on the radio that people can identify a song within the first few chords kind of a thing? You know, maybe the first three or four notes even. They can recognize the song. It's because of the musical instruments. It's not because of the lyrics. Now, don't get me wrong. There are songs that you can remember the lyrics to, of course, but the whole reason you remember that song to begin with is because of the musical accompaniment. Most of our greatest songs in our history actually have no direct musical accompaniment. You think of history, you think of the legends in orchestral music that we celebrate in the classical sense. You think of the Bachs, the Beethovens, right? When they composed their music, that's very modern. That's Middle Ages Europe, right? That's like 1,500 plus years after Christ. Well, what do you think happens before then? I'll give you another example to kind of illustrate this point. If you were to go to Iran, I've never been there, but I've met people from Iran. If you were to ever go to Iran and listen to them play music, you wouldn't understand what's going on. They don't arrange their music the same way we do in sort of the Western world. It's done to convey the cultural meaning, which means the music itself can change, but the story never changes. And if you go back to kind of what I've been sharing this morning, the actual purpose behind singing is the message remains unchanged. You can have a song in music played to different chords, and it would still sound the same overall. But you cannot do that with a melody, and that's kind of what we're looking at together this morning. So let's ask ourselves this following question here. Can we sing with grace within our hearts to one another, and can we teach one another through song if instruments are present? Now, the whole purpose of this morning's lesson doesn't predicate only on this, but this is a, this is a notable component of kind of where I'm going with this. Can we sing with grace within our hearts to one another and teach one another through song if instruments are present? That answer is no. We cannot because although both components are going to be present, it is not possible to make a melody from our hearts and then extend grace back to God. What are you doing instead? You're sending a musical note back. You might have joy within your heart, but is your joy extending grace to each other? No, it's not. You might feel happy about doing it, but when you extend grace back to God, it is only done from your heart. Again, you might feel happy about doing it, but we'll kind of look at this in a little bit here. Paul kind of stresses this point uh, to the Ephesians. If you'd like, turn over to Ephesians chapter 5. I have a couple more points before I kind of get into that. But in Ephesians chapter 5, we'll begin in the 17th verse. When you think of what Jesus has commanded for us all, he has asked us to give us his heart. If we give our heart, then we need nothing else to aid in it. Our heart is within us and we can give it back to him. We don't need something to assist us in the process. And it is the same when we extend grace to each other. 
We give our hearts. Think of it this way. If I were to help you in life with some task, maybe pick something up for you or bring something for you or give you a kind word, what is the aid or the assistant in that regard? It's only my heart. Now, if I were to give you money, it starts in the heart first, right? But if I were to give you money with the wrong motive, you might not know. Why am I talking about this? It is very much the same for singing. We can sing with a pure heart to God, and it is representative of what he asks from us in return. So I mentioned, turn over to Ephesians chapter 5, and we'll take a look beginning in the... 17th verse. And I'm going to read this and talk a little bit about the secular history of it. Paul writes, he says, Do not be foolish then, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but instead be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks in all things in the very name of our Lord Jesus Christ unto God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Now, you might note a little bit about what Paul is saying here. Singing and making heart, sorry, melody with your heart to the Lord. Look at verse 19. And let's look at some of the history surrounding song, at least from the perspective of what's relevant for the New Testament. Around the first century before Common Era, that is about the hundred years time frame before the destruction of Jerusalem, We will find that history records for us that in the synagogues themselves, the very places that Jesus and the disciples and the apostles would preach, that musical instruments were banned, not only in the synagogues, but also in the temple. And you might ask yourself, why would they do that? Well, they didn't always have musical instruments in the synagogues and the temple. You might say, well, David did this, and so on and so forth, and we'll look at that in a bit. But the synagogues themselves, musical worship within the synagogues only came during the time of Babylon. In other words, when you think of captivity. So it's relatively new within even the ancient Hebrews' history. And they realized this was a mistake. And we'll take a look at this a little bit later. But they realized it was a mistake because it had replaced the worship that was due to God. You see, when they read the scriptures back then, they could very easily see that God had always commanded song, and for explicit reasons. And in the exception cases, which have been documented in sermons before, I know Sean's given us a really good lesson on it, those exception cases stand out because they are exceptions, and therefore prove the rule. But if we consider what Paul is saying, and we consider what our Lord actually went through and would have witnessed as he preached from synagogue to synagogue, we will find that even musical instruments were banned, leaving only room for song. And there's a purpose for this when you think of it. When you think of singing itself, you can break down singing into three pillars. There's admonishment or lesson or history, as I've kind of been going over this morning, There's thankfulness, or there ought to be at least, and then the third component is being filled with the Spirit. And if you compare Paul's writings to Colossae, as well as to the Ephesians and Ephesus, we understand that this message is consistent and dominant. And that's important, because when you sing, you admonish one one another and each other, sorry. You teach each other a lesson. 
You remind each other of why we do the things we do. For example, when we sing certain songs, say, uh, for communion before we take the Lord's Supper, it is to prepare our heart and our mind for that time. And song has the power to do that. Written history does not. And the reason written history does not, or even written instruction, is because of tone. But we don't have to go too technical. So you think of even in the Old Testament, and you think of in the New Testament, and you see how this comes together, we begin to also understand that when we consider the New Testament, there is the strongest corroboration that whenever singing occurs, as long as it's done correctly, and when we think of the history behind song itself, it leaves room only for God's presence. And here's another example. I mentioned contemporary history has it, but also Jewish history. The quote I have here is from a Babylonian Talmud. This means this was a Talmud that was present in the, times of, in the time of Babylon. And you think of when Babylon ended and how it ended from both scripture and contemporary history, you realize how old this, this document is. And I want to read it because it stresses the importance. They sent word to mar how on the basis of scripture do we know that it is even forbidden to sing? And he even underlined and wrote the verse, Do not rejoice, Israel, as do the peoples do, for you have gone astray from your God, which is a quote from Hosea 9.1. Shouldn't we then extend to him the following verse? They shall not drink wine with music, strong drink shall be better than them who drink it, which is from Isaiah 24.9. Had he sent that verse, one might have concluded that what is forbidden is the use of musical instruments, but not a cappella singing. From other verses, I derive that fact. And if you want to know more kind of on this, I'd be happy to share the original sources for it, and you can go and, and kind of research it yourself. But I think this is very pivotal, because even in the time of the Babylonian Talmud, it was very evident that singing was always what God had preferred. Sorry. And so when Paul lectures everyone on this, he's not teaching them something new. He's not revisiting some aspect of their history that is unfamiliar to them. Um, now let's take a look here. Uh, I'm just flipping through slides because I've actually already talked about these. I want to actually look at the secular world because the whole basis of why I made this uh, lesson this morning is why the secular world can observe the things they do among us, as long as we do it correctly. And I want to take a look at an interaction between a very important and well-known person in history, and that is the Roman Emperor Trajan. They noticed something about the early church, and I want to read their quotes here to give you the sense of why singing is not only important, but why, if it is done according to the Lord's uh, prescription or even commandments, if you will, that the desired result is, is observable? In other words, what am I trying to say? Even people who don't believe in Jesus Christ, if we sing and do things correctly, they can observe that about us, and they can make note of it. And this is what happened in this interaction within history. So we're going to take a look at Pliny the Younger, not, not the Elder, Pliny the Younger, who was the Roman govern governor of Bithynia from about 111 A.D. to 113 A.D. And he wrote to Emperor, Emperor Trajan. And I'm going to read the quote here. I have the quotes all up here, but I'm going to go ahead and read it. It's, it's a fairly reasonable discourse. 
So Pliny writes to the emperor, he says, Meanwhile, in the case of those who were denounced to me as Christian, I have observed the following procedure. I interrogated these as to whether they were Christians. Those who had confessed, I interrogated a second and third time, threatening them with punishment. Those who persisted, I ordered executed. For I had no doubt that whatever in the nature of their creed, stubbornness, and inflexible obstinacy, surely they deserved to be punished. They, there were others who possessed of the same folly, but because they were Roman citizens, I signed an order for them to be transferred to Rome. And Pliny continues to Trajan, he says, They asserted, however, that the sun and the substance of their fault or error had been that they were accustomed to meet on a fixed day before dawn, and get this, and sing responsively a hymn to Christ as to a God, and to bind themselves by oath, not to some crime, but not to commit fraud, theft, or adultery or even falsify their trust, nor to refuse to return a trust when called upon to do so. When this was over, it was their custom to depart and to, descend, and to assemble again and partake of food, but not ordinary and innocent food. Even this they affirmed that they had ceased to do after my edict, by which in accordance with your instructions, I had forbidden political associations." Accordingly, I judged it all the more necessary to find out that the truth was by, tr by torturing two female slaves who were called deaconesses. But I discovered nothing else but depraved and excessive superstition. I therefore postponed the investigation and hastened to consult you, for the matter seemed to me to warrant consulting you, especially because of the number involved. For many persons of every age, every rank, and also of both sexes, are and will be endangered. For the contagion of this superstition has spread not only to the cities, but to the villages and the farms, but it seems possible to check and cure it. What is he saying here? He says that Christians are identifiable because they could meet in the morning and sing to their God. Is that not what we do? He also says that they sing and they carry on moral lessons through song. Again, no crime. They're not teaching each other fraud or theft or adultery. In fact, they warn against it, all on the basis through song. Remember, this is a governor observing this. He's getting reports from his foot soldiers, liter literally commanders within the Roman forces. And he observes this. And he's ready to kill them all. He thinks this is an offense to Rome. He thinks this is an offense to how they believe in their uh, plural worship, if you will. But then there's a problem. Pliny realizes that because this is so strong among Christians of the day, he actually has to appeal to the Caesar. And he says to Trajan, he says, look, if I keep going, I'm going to have to kill everyone. And that seems wrong to him. And Trajan will reply back, but I wanted to note that. Why do we sing? How is, it, how is it important? How is it relevant and observant within us? Well, you take this, a non-believer. He obviously points out the, the very habits we, 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 we share in today, some 2,000 years later. Now let's look at the emperor's response to Pliny, to the governor. And Trajan writes, he says, "'You have observed my proper procedure.'" My dear Pliny, 
in sifting the cases of those who had been denounced, denounced to you as Christians. For it is not possible to lay down any general rule to serve as a kind of fixed standard. They are not to be sought out, no. If they are denounced and proved guilty, they are to be punished. But with this reservation, that whoever denies that he is a Christian and really proves it, that is, by worshipping our gods, even though he was under suspicion in the past, he shall, he shall obtain pardon through repentance. But anonymously posted accusations ought to have no place in any prosecution, for this is both dangerous as a kind of precedent and out of keeping with the spirit of our age. That's very remarkable. He says, look, what you observe is valid. What you observe is repeatable. And he says, but take no blind accusation. And what you do find, give them a chance to convert and we will spare their life. That's remarkable. Again, all on the basis of the governor observing that they sing every day. And so, <coughs> where did Christians get singing from? It's not just from our Lord Jesus when we think of the examples in the New Testament. And I want to kind of rapidly go through the examples through Scripture here to kind of give us a history of what it looks like in the Bible, and then we'll close out our lesson this morning. The history of song in the Bible is literally in the very beginning. Turn over to Genesis 4.21, and we're going to take a look at the very first example of the history of song, at least as recorded. We meet this man named Jubal. He's only seven generations from Adam. Seven generations. And how is it described for Jubal? Look at verse 21. He is described as the father of those who play the lyre and the pipe. And when we look through, through, through Scripture, we will find from Genesis all the way to Revelation that music, in particular song, is present. And so this morning, I just have some examples here. If anyone would like these key examples, I would be happy to give them afterwards. <clears throat> I want to take a quick note here. We, we, I gave you an example of, of Pliny writing to Trajan because of, by observation, if we look very closely, we can find certain aspects in history. But the same is in Scripture. I gave you kind of like the first reference in Scripture. The last reference is in, I believe, chapter 15 of Revelation. But if you look at the Psalms themselves, and you, if you look really closely, we see that other authors, more than just Moses or David, we see that Asaph, the sons of Korah, even Solomon had made music. The reference to a thousand and five songs for Solomon, we don't have those in history. They're lost to history but we have a record of it here in Scripture. That is important because when you answer the question of where did the Christians get their singing from, they got it from the Jewish tradition as set forth in the beginning of mankind. And so in closing this morning, <coughs> my throat's drying out here, I apologize. I want to key, on on, key in on my favorite example in Scripture of why singing is important. If you'd like, please turn to Zechariah chapter 9, and in, the verse, and in verse 9, the song here recorded for us is literally called the Hallel. It literally means to praise God. When we think of singing and praising our God, when we praise Jesus and we praise the Father, we are performing some aspect of Hallel. 
If you took a common Jew in the time of Christ and you walked up to them and you asked them to recite the Hallel, they could give you six psalms. Psalm 113 through 118, verse by verse, line by line. They could recite it fully from memory. In fact, traditional Jews can pretty much do the same today. And this is important because this is a very special meaning reserved only for God himself. And you think of this song, you might recognize when Jesus comes in a week before his crucifixion, when he enters into Jerusalem on, on the coat of a foal, recorded here as a donkey, you understand that the song they sing for him is a song only reserved unto God. And you think of when they did it at that time, they were happy, they were joyous, they were ecstatic. And what did the Pharisees do? They said, Master, quiet your slaves. And what was Jesus' reply? Think about it. If you don't know, it's in, it's in the book of Matthew, and it's also in the book of Mark. But think about what Jesus' reply. He says, I tell you, if these are silent, then the rocks will cry out. And that's very important. So when we think of singing this morning, when we think of the history behind it, and we think of even perhaps the most important songs we find in the history of Scripture itself, all of them point to one thing, our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna means save us or save now. You think of the height of joy. You think of our Lord and why singing is important. And we can begin to see how they relate. But there's one other thing I want to point out this morning. The greatest of the Hallels, or the songs to praise God, is Psalm 136. If you want to kind of turn over there and look at that. So I, I, gave, sorry, I gave this word uh, Shekinah before, and it's a word that doesn't appear in the scriptures, but the sense is always there. When you think of Jesus entering in Jerusalem before his, before his crucifixion, that was the height of when people could recognize that God was truly among them. Uh, we mentioned it this morning. Is it important that we celebrate Jesus because of his birth, for example, on a day like today? The answer is no. Although it is important, it's not the important thing. His death is. But in order for his death to occur, the announcement of his coming had to occur, and he had to arrive. And that's exactly what happens here when we think of Zechariah 9.9. Turn over to Matthew 26.30, or you can even read it on the screen here. And this is at the end of the supper that they had. After singing a hymn, they went to the Mount of Olives. I would submit to you this morning, the song that they sang before they went to the Mount of Olives was Psalm 136. And you might say, well, how do you know that? Look exactly at the purpose behind the Passover. Look exactly at the purpose behind singing, and you can put it together and you will find that Psalm 136 fits most likely. I'm not saying this is a fact. I'm saying it is most likely based on the importance of song and the importance of the Jewish tradition. So let's kind of go to the end here. In our scripture reading this morning, kind of as we wrap up here, some final thoughts. When you read this uh, this, these words from Isaiah, when you read the importance of singing and when you hear the importance of singing, 
when you think of reading through Isaiah's words, is not God angry with people while they sin? Look at the first verse here, for although you were angry with me. And we can ask these following questions. Is not God the one whose anger is turned away when we reach out to him for mercy, when we are baptized? And when we are baptized, do we not make an appeal to heaven? Give me a new heart. Save me, God. Do we not say Hosanna in essence? Do we not recognize the very joy in God that he is the one who has saved us from trouble? Do we not recognize that God is the one that can save anyone from trouble, no matter the type of trouble? When we are baptized, do we not draw the water, draw from the water and with joy at the very fact that we are then saved? Does God not heal people? If you just look very closely in the 12, sorry, in the six verses we read this morning, you can ask these questions and get an understanding. And you can do it the same through singing. And let me ask you this. Do we not go forth and give thanks when we call on him and his name? Do we not try to live our lives as Christians to show others the same hope within us? I gave you the example of Pliny, the governor, to Trajan. And he recognizes this among Christians. None of the Christians are named. But he recognizes that they sang before dawn to Jesus. And they sang moral lessons. Do we not try to live our lives to show others that hope? Do we not make his deeds known when we preach his word? Do we not help people remember that his name is exalted? It's all done through song. And finally, do we not praise him in song for the very excellent things he has done? And when we consider the wrapping of our lesson this morning, is it not written in the scriptures, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel? So I have here an invitation here. And Jesus declares on the last day, the great day of the feast, the Passover I mentioned earlier, Jesus stood and cried out among the people and he says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. If you're not a Christian this morning and you would like to understand why it is that Christians are unique among the world, and why that we have this great Savior, Jesus Christ, who can save anyone from their misdeeds, no matter how egregious or how offensive, come forward. If you've lived your life and you've lived with regret and you've not understood what the true gospel call is because maybe you've forgotten some aspect of it and you'd like to come forward, together we can help you. We can help you repent of what you've done. Remember, Christians are a loving group, are they not? We're here to embrace each other and help each other. For that's exactly what Jesus and the apostles and the disciples had done. They helped each other for the appropriate time. Won't you come forward together as we stand and as we sing?